Welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to New Zealand's agriculture industry. Key areas of focus are industry analysis with key stakeholders, policy makers, engagement with farmers and producers, and working to close the rural-urban divide. Farmers work hard, they love the land, and are a critical part of New Zealand's fabric. There are many things for farmers to think about, whether it be drought, market conditions and farm gate returns, and increased pressure from the public or policy makers. Working with Postquake Farming, we are taking a look at what farmers are doing to improve their businesses, their biodiversity, their land use and their well-being. Before we get into this week's episode, let's take a look at the beef and lamb market. The spring store cattle market is in full swing and is proving tricky. Slaughter prices are varying around the country due to differing feed levels. As a result, both islands are favouring cattle closer to finishing weights while lighter weight cattle of mixed breeding are slow trading. North Island cattle slaughter prices dropped around 5 to 10 cents a kilogram across classes last week, while South Island prices held steady. This North Island drop has been coming for some time. Processors are working on limited capacity and a steady run of cattle tips supply in their favour, which allows them to ease pricing. Export beef returns have begun to soften, which is quite normal for this time of year when it comes to the US, as their domestic cow production lifts. Last year China was bidding up manufacturing beef, but mostly remains absent this year, leaving US buyers dictating this part of the market. August export data shows prices into China came back 30 cents a kilogram on July. A North Island 500 kilogram traditional steer is trading in the paddock at around $5.20 per kilogram and a South Island 450 kilogram traditional steer is trading at around $2.65 per kilogram respectively. After much uncertainty in the lamb market, North Island sheep slaughter prices seem to have stabilised as prices are holding steady on lamb and mutton. The South Island prices showed movement last week. Lamb lost some ground by around 10 cents a kilogram, but mutton gained an extra 10 cents a kilogram, with another lift expected this week as processes are in the market. Ewes with lambs afoot have seen a steady decline in price over the past month, and most are now trading for around $80 to $90, with the odd pen of quality ewes and heavy lambs surpassing the $100 mark. Europe has been the brightest star for lamb sales of late. Both the EU and UK are taking more product than a year ago. The US remains tougher going, but processes have been able to move some chilled cuts that are better suited to retail markets. The Chinese market is slowly warming up from its usual quiet time, with increased sales at steady prices. This week on Factor Magri, I catch up with Peter Bosworth from Bosworth Capital. Peter has been involved in advisory and banking for 35 years, with a special interest in agribusiness, both within the farm gate and also outside the farm gate over that period. Peter has also been involved with investment banking, capital raising, both debt and equity, and merger and acquisitions for a number of businesses that service the primary sector. Let's check in with Peter. Hello, Peter. Thank you for joining me on the show again. How are you today? Yeah, good, thank you. For those that missed the previous show, please can you tell me about the work that you do? Now, Mangus, I've been involved in the advisory space for 30-odd years. Initially, I was a farm consultant going back to my sort of post-Lincoln days. Since then, I've had uh, involvement with the finance and banking sector, so I now still do a bit of advisory work, but mostly in the sort of development and expansion and succession areas. also do a fair bit of uh, investment banking work with a company called Armillary Private Capital, uh, an Auckland and Wellington-based firm. 
we do capital raising, M&A type work and sort of looking for investors and, and private companies. So, uh, yeah, that's what keeps me busy at the moment. Peter, how are the confidence levels out there with your agri clients? Oh, I'd say it's a pretty mixed bag, really. Um, you know, I think that would be backed up by the, the Rabo survey uh, last week. You know, I guess even there's a bit of an anxiety around the weather. It's not quite wet enough. Um, product prices are probably looking a little bit up and down. Uh, this government is bringing in a raft of legislation, which I think uh, is making farmers a little bit fearful. And, you know, the banks aren't being that easy either. Not that I blame them. You know, they've got to make some or accommodate some rule changes for the Reserve Bank. But on the flip side, I suppose interest rates are really low, which is which is helpful. Um, productivity so far has been damn good. So, like, typically for most of our farmers, they're just showing good resilience again. We're seeing issues in our international markets, and in particular, the food service industry. Venison and lamb have been impacted and taken a hammering. COVID clearly is driving this downside in many cases. Do you see more disruption over the next 12 months and beyond? Yeah, that's a really hard question because, um, you know, it's hard enough to pick what's happening next week, let alone in, in 12 months. Um, and, you know, the, with the whole post-COVID, well, not post-COVID yet, we're still in the midst of it, feels like there's a bubble or two going to burst. You know, asset prices are strong. People don't know where to put their money. Um, stock market's going gangbusters. Housing strong. So, you know, it's really difficult to pick where product prices are going to land. Um, a lot of our quality meat, like lamb and venison, as you've mentioned, um, do get sold into, into markets that pay a lot for it. So you've just got to expect some pressure in there. People aren't going to be as wealthy as they were, won't have the disposable incomes as they did 12 months ago. So I guess it's all looking a little bit awkward. But you know, on, the, on the flip side of that again is that, you know, milk prices are looking strong. You know, you, you can lock into a milk futures contract at 6.70 or 6.80. It's been over $8 on, uh, over $7, sorry, on occasions this season. So you can lock in. There are beef contracts out there. So there are ways of getting around this in terms of taking a Ford lamb sales price. Um, so I guess it's just a little bit of wait and see, cover your risk, maybe take some futures if you've got that option or, or the odd fixed contract. In the conversations you are having, how are supply chains holding up? There was some concern earlier in the year regarding the potential of less boats coming to New Zealand due to COVID-19, which could provide challenges to exporters sending our products back to our international markets. Yeah, I think that was sort of more of an issue back during our lockdown and COVID period. I, I'm not hearing so much of an issue there. The only issue I'm hearing is the supply chain on the other side. Imports coming back in. Um, some of them have been held up, and that's not necessarily by shipping. It's just that the manufacturers uh, in parts of Asia and, and Europe are still behind schedule. We're a small country, and we're probably taking a, a low priority. So shipping, by and large, is back to some normal capacity? Um, I'm not fully on top of that, Angus, So, yeah, yeah. Um, but I haven't heard of any disruption um, uh, in recent times. Mm. Peter, how are land prices currently, and is there much activity in terms of farms being sold? Well, it's been up in North Canterbury. There's been good interest in, in sheep and beef properties and arable properties. There's been a lot of farms selling in the last sort of six or 12 months. 
uh, dairy farm sales, the activity continues to be low, but that's just typical, I think, of the Canterbury market. When um, when the market's weak, people just hang in there uh, and, and don't sell. So in terms of uh, buying a farm, there's probably never been a better time, actually, with these low interest rates. Um, product outlook is, is still, I would say, better than, than average by a long shot. And... Um, uh, but, you know, there's just a lack of appetite, for instance, in the dairy sector to buy. Um, they, they have to deal with the raft of these regulations. The banks are requiring capital principal to be repaid. So there are a few headwinds there in terms of making a, a sale or a purchase stick. Um, but as I said, low interest rates, it's probably never been a better time to, to try and expand or grow. And, and we're seeing that for the first time, for a long time, really, in the sheep and beef sector where product returns or your return on capital against the farm is probably better than the cost of your debt finance. So it's making it a little bit easier than it ever has. How long do you see these interest rates remaining as low as they are currently? Um, that's another impossible question, Angus, but uh, the Reserve Bank's been printing money um, as a result of the COVID crisis. Effectively, that money's been on lent to the banks uh, to try and generate, maintain or grow activity. Um, so I just don't see us pulling out of um, this hole too quickly. We're, we've inherited now a big chunk of additional debt across the country. So I think interest rates do look likely to remain low. Um, you know, there is talk of the OCR going negative. Um, that doesn't mean that farmers' interest rates will go negative, but it could mean that they come off um, their current lows um, a fraction more. So, you know, you can get a very good fixed rate at the moment for uh, mid-threes. You know, who knows, that might come down under three. So let's say the farmer banks on 3%, leverages up hard, buys a neighbouring property or expands his or her farming business, and then suddenly we get a bounce to 5 or 7%. Are you having those sorts of conversations with your clients around that risk? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so that is a very real risk. So you've just got to take the opportunity when these interest rates are low to probably um, speed up your amortisation, reduce your debt a little bit quicker. Yeah. Um, Whenever we look at a, a longer-term proposition, borrowing some additional money, we'll never bank on these rates, um, these low rates for the long term. Probably work on on rates near a five or six percent to make sure that everything can still work at those levels. Uh, mm. Miles too risky to think that it's going to be at three percent forever. Um, that won't happen. Farm succession can be a complicated process. Profitability and off-farm investment, to me, would make succession much easier. If a farming business is not financially as strong as it could be, for whatever reason, and the view is for every sibling to be treated equally, surely the easiest thing to do is sell everything, isn't it? And I say that without considering legacy and a desire to keep a particular parcel of land in the family, which for some is really important. Yeah, that is important. For many people it is. But, you know, there's families that I visit um, to, to a group this week and, and there's none of, the, none of the children are interested in farming. So, mm. so their succession plans will rely on, on selling down the farm. But for many, they want to see the next generation take on the challenge. Um, there is that legacy that you mentioned and for it to continue. So as, as we talked about last time, 
the key thing to succession is to have a profitable business. If you're profitable, probably better than average, then uh, there's there's a high chance you'll make a succession plan work. Um, so, you know, that, that's often part of the, the game plan initially is to make sure that you're going flat out in terms of profitability. Uh, then use these these low interest rates potentially take to take advantage of the situation and give the succession thing a good go. Um, it's still wanted, still desired. It's been the legacy, the backbone of our farming community for many generations. So I just don't see that changing too much. Selling, selling um, is an easy option and it is a good option for many, but um, uh, the vast majority want to keep on going and, and see the next generation then. Yeah, this might seem like an odd question, but do you think a young married couple who might have just gone through a successful family farm succession process, do you think they might think about how many children they have based on their ability to support their own children through a succession? Yeah, that's a pretty odd question, Angus, but, uh, you know, I guess uh, China had the one-child policy, didn't they? Um, yeah. It's uh, not a discussion that I can say I've ever had with uh, any of my farming clients. Um, mm. I'm sure the odd one has given it some consideration, you know, because obviously if you're dividing up your assets by two or four, um, it could make the job just a little bit easier. But who knows, you might have two children um, that are interested in farming and two that become rocket science, so, you know, Indeed. Uh, I mean, four children might be advantageous in the end, then might make the succession thing a damn sight easier. Peter, what are the big headwinds for young aspirational farmers who might be embarking on purchasing a farm through a succession process or entering into an equity partnership? Yeah, I, th- I think the, the biggest headwind, and it doesn't matter whether it's farm succession or you're trying to buy your first house, is, is accumulating your first chunk of capital, getting your first $10,000 to get the first $100,000 you know, I think um, once once you've sort of got into buying an asset and you do see some asset growth, which seems to happen pretty often here in New Zealand, then you're sort of underway. But it's just getting that first chunk of capital together and finding a way where you can save enough money or accumulate some initial capital to, to get involved. Um, and as we've talked before, just starting early on all these sorts of things makes one huge difference. Um, so I guess the other sort of um, big headwind at the moment is is the banks. I, I alluded to that a little earlier that um, the banking rules have changed quite substantially in the last few years. Um, effectively, for many years, the the banks would bank a proposition if you could show a break-even position, paying interest only. Now you need to be able to demonstrate you can amortise the debt. Um, so that does lower the amount of money that you can borrow. It will impact um, the succession plans for many. Um, But once again, these low interest rates are making a little bit of difference there. Um, So we've just got to take advantage of those while we can. Um, So yeah, just getting the the initial capital together, getting support from the banker. um, And the other big headwind potentially for some people is that they're just not good enough. You've got to be damn good to make a lot of money out of farming. Um, you've got to be well above average. So it's been honest about that with your family and with your advisors and with your bank and have the confidence to, uh, to fire ahead. Peter, what are some alternative ownership models for families to consider in regards to succession? I think um, 
you know, there's the stock standard where um, child coming into the farming situation will buy into the stock and plant and then potentially lease the farm from the family or the family company. Um, that is the reasonably stock standard way to enter into um, a farm succession plan. Um, there aren't a lot of other viable alternatives. Um, you know, equity partnerships, I think we talked about last time. Um, they do have some merit. Um, you've got to find some like-minded investors. You've got to find a property that offers something to those investors. You know, they don't often fully understand farming. They find it difficult to accept a low return on capital. They might be looking for some capital growth. So, um, so, so equity partnerships, you know, were in vogue. Uh, we're seeing less of them in, in recent times. I guess that's partly influenced by a lack of offshore capital coming in here, the Overseas Investment Office regulations. Um, but if you can find the right person and find the right property, an equity partnership, um, i.e. finding other investors, uh, is a viable alternative. Is the end game in farming total corporate ownership or is the family farm safe? Well, I did a study on that back in the in the 80s and um, it looked as though the corporate ownership model was going to take off and continue and that's when TASAG were around and um, Applefields uh, Dairy Holdings still exists as, as the remnants of TASAG but no, look, I don't. I don't think corporate ownership uh, is going to take off. There's a, a few groups still um, successfully growing away in New Zealand, but farming families are the backbone of this country, and I just don't see that really changing. There's a place for both, um, but the one thing that the corporates struggle with, I think, is that sometimes you know, given the um, the variable rate of returns that we get from our product prices, the ups and downs. Um, they don't have that ability to cut their cost structure too much. They normally got quite a large overhead because the family farm can really just hunker down, um, um, stop doing things for a year uh, until returns come right. So, mm. so no, I think um, the farming family farm will just carry on. It's good to hear. COVID really has brought to the fore just how important New Zealand's primary sector is to New Zealand's economy for many, including our policymakers, which does grind my gears somewhat, uh, I have to say, Peter, because the primary sector has always been important to our economy. Do you think policymakers are on the right track currently? And you've touched a bit on policy. Yeah, well, it's fascinating, isn't it? You know, three years ago in the lead up to the election, the amount of negative press that farmers were receiving actually put them into uh, into the doldrums really you know it had a huge influence on on what they thought about their own farming ability their farms and, and, and their futures so if you sort of come to today this year this election um, you know I don't think there's been too much said about farming um, the National Party have said that labor are bagging farmers I don't actually buy into that but all parties have actually gone quite quiet on on farming. I think they have recognised that primary production will drag this country out of the mire, that it continues to be important. Um, so, 
Yep, I think they are on the right track, but jeepers, they're, they're bringing down some legislation and it's mind-boggling at the speed and, and, the, and the amount that's happening. It's just not the fresh water, it's the biodiversity. Yesterday I attended the Crown Pastoral Lease um, High Country Accord meeting. You know, we, we've got changes there as well, massive changes. And so we just need to try and slow it down, make sure the legislation is drafted correctly. And I think everybody recognises we need a little bit of change, but um, we've got to do it sensibly. Um, and you know, I, I can only, you know, if we get a Labour Greens government, that's that is a big worry. Uh, this last election term, New Zealand first put the spoke in the wheel quite a few times in terms of stopping things that would have been disastrous for farmers. So, um, yep, here's not. Is hoping we don't get a, a Labour Greens government, but it's looking very likely. Certainly, challenge your time. In the last 12 months, there's been a lot of policy thrusted upon farmers, and I agree with you. There needs to be brakes put on somewhat and slow down. Think about what they're doing. Engage with farmers. Talk to farmers more through the process, and have more of an input from the farming community. Yep, and and the, your last point is critical. A lot of people are just sort of throwing their arms in, in the air and saying it's too much. Don't get it, but you've got to get involved um, um, and, and try and make a difference. Understand what's coming down the down the pathway, and try and make some changes. Mm. Agreed, Peter. I thank you very much for your time today. That's all good. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you to Peter Bosworth from Bosworth Capital for joining me on the show this week. Succession can be a very challenging process. For Peter, farm succession planning always starts with ensuring the business is profitable and has strong financial performance. Most succession plans work on trying to be fair to the non-farming siblings and if possible, providing them with some capital earlier rather than later so they can buy a house, business or have capital to invest elsewhere. That can be easier said than done. So in order for that to happen, the farming business has to have a solid foundation and strong financial performance. Given the return on capital is generally low for farming, 2-3% for sheep and beef and 5-7% for dairy compared to other business types, the ability to borrow money to make farm succession happen is a lot more difficult. It is becoming increasingly harder to borrow from banks and as Peter pointed out, banks are requiring principal and interest to be paid back whereas historically, debt servicing only was common. There is real opportunity to capitalise on the current low interest rates to pay back more principal, which can only be a good thing when considering things like succession or off-farm investment in the future. Another interesting point is that farming is hard. Not everyone can do it, and you need to be better than average to really be successful. Another consideration is encouraging children to do their own thing, And this comes back to the earlier conversations can start, the better the outcome for all family members will be. If children are encouraged to pursue careers away from the farm or start their own businesses, then that can have many benefits and make the process easier down the track for when someone does decide to go farming. It is interesting, family farms that have historically supported only one family have moved in many cases to intensify their properties through various methods to increase productivity and profitability to try and support more siblings and make the succession process easier. I'm not convinced this will continue to be a sustainable option 
as we are now seeing a move away from squeezing as much out of the land as we can as the focus moves towards sustainability. As we consider things like sustainability and increased biodiversity, which have been discussed a lot on the show, it is very pleasing to see positive research coming out this week for the sheep and beef farmer. Over the years, there has been significant focus on the emissions from livestock production. This is well documented and has been thrashed by many people and groups, but little to no recognition has been given to the sequestration also taking place on farm as part of the overall biological system. As with any business, all factors of an operation should be considered for both emissions and sequestration. Not only have emissions from New Zealand sheep and beef production reduced by more than 30% since 1990, which I've discussed previously, but new research shows that most of the remaining on-farm emissions are in fact being offset by woody vegetation. Sheep and beef farmers are potentially close to being carbon neutral as a whole. The research shows that native and exotic trees on sheep and beef farms are offsetting nearly all remaining agricultural emissions, and woody vegetation on sheep and beef farms is offsetting between 63 and 118% of the on-farm agriculture emissions through sequestration. This independent study was headed by Dr. Bradley Case, Senior Lecturer in GIS and Remote Sensing in the Applied Ecology Department, School of Science at Auckland University of Technology. The research was peer-reviewed by Dr. Fiona Carswell, Chief Scientist, Manaka Whenua, Landcare Research, and Dr. Adam Forbes, Senior Ecologist from Forbes Ecology and Research Associate with the New Zealand School of Forestry at the University of Canterbury. The research reinforces the importance of farmers getting formal recognition for the sequestration happening on their farms. Significant biodiversity exists because of hard work farmers have undertaken. Farmers over the last few decades have made a deliberate decision to retire significant parts of their farms, which has come at great cost to their businesses. This must be recognised and they need to be celebrated for their forward-thinking approach. Last year, the government passed the Zero Carbon Act, which sets targets for gross methane reductions and for net emissions of other gases. The government is now working with the agricultural industry and developing a framework that will ultimately help achieve these targets. Farmer-led discussions are critical and we need more of this. If farmers are having to face a cost for their emissions, it is essential they also get a credit for the true sequestration happening on their farms. The emissions trading scheme currently only allows companies or individuals to register a narrow range of forestry to claim a credit for sequestration. This criteria is driven by international rules which were based on a range of factors back in the 1980s, such as how accurate satellite imagery was at the time. Most of the native vegetation on New Zealand sheep and beef farms is unable to be included in the emissions trading scheme because it predates 1990. But it is making a major contribution to climate change mitigation as well as biodiversity, soil erosion management and water quality mitigation. As I mentioned to Peter, policymakers need to calm down, think very hard about what they are trying to achieve, engage with farmers 
and farmers have to be part of decisions being made in Wellington. After all, it's farmers we need, year in, year out, not politicians. Thank you for listening, and catch you next time on Factum Agri.